now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and specifically about the role of social media influencers that they're having in kind of I guess, framing and shaping the narrative of that conflict and and other, frankly, narratives as well. We're going to talk about the R word. Whenever Gene says it, it scares me. I mean, it scares me anyway, (laughs) but the R word, recession, obviously. Talk about what's just bluster, what might be worth paying attention to, and also what not to do if, in fact, we are in a recession. Then, of course, to close out the show, uh, we've got something pretty special. If you've been listening weekly, you know that we encourage people to take advantage of the Edelman Financial Engine's free monthly webinars. Today, we're going to do a sneak peek of one that's coming up in March on tax-efficient investing right in time for your April taxes. (laughs) That's worth uh, paying attention to as well. But first, let's begin with what's happening in financial news. Jean? Oh, thanks so much, Soledad. The Federal Reserve this week, and, and people who listen to this show know that we taped the show earlier in the week. So we are taping this week on a Tuesday. As we speak, the Federal Reserve is meeting the Open Market Committee of the Federal Reserve, and they are expected to increase interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. They had been talking about a half point increase, but with all of the uncertainty with Russia and Ukraine, they're going to keep it smaller right now. At least that's what um, Fed Chairman Jay Powell has indicated. This is not expected to be the one and only rate increase. It's expected to be the first in a series of what we call tightening. And it's, it's aimed at reducing the sort of inflation that is potentially going to tip the economy into recession. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's what we've got going on. So let's talk a little bit about social media's influence, which, listen, you and I have been certainly in TV news long enough to know that we have seen this coming for a very long time, right? There used to be a time when we would have a chance to report breaking news. And now news really breaks on Twitter. It breaks on Instagram. It breaks on TikTok. Very interesting to see how I think there's a strategy of informing a lot of the social media influencers as opposed to saying like, oh, well, you know, they get it first to now actually thinking of, well, they're going to be the leading edge in information. And we, we want to be... make sure that they have the right information, right? Yeah. There's been so much misinformation bandied about that I think government in particular and, and large corporations are saying, all right, as long as these people now have the most powerful microphones, and in many cases they do, we want to make sure that we give them the information they need so that the country as a whole gets it right. So the White House actually did a private briefing with about 30 TikTok stars where they read them in on what was going on in Russia and Ukraine, and they briefed them. They gave them the sort of briefing that the journalists might get in the press room about the strategic goals of the United States in the region. They answered questions on distributing aid to Ukrainians, to working with NATO, even to how the U.S. would react to uh, Russian use of nuclear weapons. It made perfect sense to me because I think 
you know, if you're trying to get out a narrative and get out your point of view, as you say, the most powerful microphones, I don't even know what's the most powerful, but certainly the most prolific, right? These are TikTok stars who have giant audiences. And so you can see quickly the ripple effects of a story that they're talking about and the impact as it hits, whether people are talking about Ukraine or maybe they're even talking about financial markets. I mean, there's been a giant rise in the number of people who give out financial information on social media. A huge rise. And and in particular, I think on TikTok, I've been told for many years that people will use my Twitter feed as a, a news feed for personal finance, that I try to to tweet those stories that are interesting and important. And and you do the very same thing, but we've seen a, a rise of social media influencers in and around finance where people are learning how to invest. Since they you've are... been in this business a long time, does that worry you, right? Because you know some of them are 22-year-olds giving advice about investing. So when you see some of those, does it worry you? Do you think it's good? It's bad? I think, look, I think 60-year-olds are just as capable of giving bad advice as 22-year-olds, <laughs> right? And there's so much good information out there if you take the time to read it and process it, digest it, and then explain it, that I I have seen a lot of very young people do a perfectly credible job. And my feeling is not everybody's going to listen to me, right? I'm not everybody's taste. Not everybody's going to listen to Jim Cramer. But in order to get educated about your money, you have to find people that that make sense to you, that you're willing to listen to. And and some of them may be 22. I haven't actually seen a lot of TikToks that do complicated walkthroughs, very nuanced <laughs> investing advice. But the ones that are like basic factoids about mm-hmm. how if you're 20, you might want to think about money. I, I think they're very additive as people are trying to figure it out. You know, the the reason that so many people, I think, are drawn to being creators in this space and, and in other spaces is that they're making money. And Bloomberg yeah. did a story um, at where it, it noted that creators get paid anywhere from $100 to $1,500 for a swipe up ad on their Instagram. Some of them are making $10,000 for a post on their feed. You know, if you're Charlie D'Amelio, right, and you've got millions and millions and millions of followers on TikTok, you're making a lot more. Which leads to a problem, right? Which is they're not fiduciaries, <laughs> which means, you know, if you're going to get paid $10,000 to plug something, frankly, I could see it not necessarily being uh, the best advice, but being advice that might pay the creator. Is that think- unfair to say? No, I don't think it's unfair to say. It's why the FTC has rules that you have to label a content as an advertisement if, in fact, you're getting paid to push a product or you're getting paid to promote a particular message. And anybody who is uh, watching social media should be very aware of the fact that that you know when you see a very popular influencer promoting something that perhaps doesn't make a little a lot of sense that that's what's going on but you know you know that positive news right a, a something that seems like a, a a very optimistic get rich quick scheme gets more clicks gets more engagement and if you're being paid 
by the engagement, you can see where the problem would come in because it doesn't necessarily have to be true. You just need to get the engagement. So, you know, if it's if you're giving factual but maybe less optimistic news, uh, you're not going to get the you're not going to get paid as well, frankly. Exactly. And it also points out why it's so important whenever you get information from a source perhaps that you haven't listened to before from a, from a new place, you want to vet that information. You want to vet it. How do you do it. that? How do I do it? Because I hear that a lot. I think you do it with your financial advisor. Mm. I think if you have a financial advisor, that's that's when you reach out because you're not just vetting for truth, although that's very, very important. You're also vetting to make sure it makes sense to apply whatever strategy they're hawking in the context of your own life. I think you're right. It doesn't have to be misinformation or disinformation. It can just be not for you. It's a really interesting time as we shift to how we get information and how you navigate getting getting good information. I think of it all as very additive. I love watching some of those TikToks. I like listening to people who've got advice. And then I also go back to my guy, who's a guy, uh, and and we just talk about my money specifically. So I don't find it contradictory to kind of come in with my own ideas that have been sort of shaped and formed outside and then bring them in and say, well, I heard about this. What do you think about that? Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? I do the same with my financial advisor. And it often comes back to the fact that the tried and true boring strategies are better, right? That that maybe you want to play a little bit with crypto. Maybe you want to play a little bit with with a, a risky investment or an alternative strategy. But when it comes to the meat and potatoes of your retirement fund, of the money that you are counting on to get you to Florida or Arizona or Paris or wherever you want to retire, you need a plan and you need to stick to the plan even when the markets are as volatile as they've been lately. It's all about your personal economy, as Gene Chatsky likes to say, and I agree with that. We're going to take a short break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about the R word. And I really um, want to pick your brain, Gene, about what, what are the mechanisms that could be driving us into a recession, what you're seeing, what we should really be focused on, and what we should ignore in the market. Coming up, we're going to give you a sneak peek at a webinar that's coming up on tax-efficient investing. We're back in a moment. Stay with us. Tax-efficient investing can make a big difference. See how you can work with a financial planner to make it a part of your overall wealth management plan. Thank you for joining us. We're back with you on Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. I'm here with Soledad O'Brien. So you know, if you've been listening, that I am a big Jason Zweig fan. Jason writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Wall Street Journal. I've actually worked with Jason at two of my jobs, first at Forbes magazine, later at Money magazine. Last week, he wrote that John Templeton said that great investors possess seven cardinal virtues, curiosity, skepticism, discipline, independence, humility, patience, and courage. And today, with the help of Brian Leslie, a wealth planner from Omaha, Nebraska with Edelman Financial Engines, we're going to dig into 
two of those virtues. We're going to dig into discipline and courage. Brian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Those are sort of good virtues for just human beings. I, I like those that list of, of uh, virtues just to like make it through life. Last week on the show, Brian, though, Jean mentioned the R word uh, for the first time, recession. Not that we're in a recession, but I think more people are starting to talk about a recession. And as we watch the impacts of such a globally interconnected world, I don't think it's super hard for people to imagine, you know, any kind of cascading event that could happen as we see what's going on in Russia into Ukraine and then all of that pushing markets potentially toward a recession. So when your clients come to you and say, I'm a little concerned about a recession, what does it mean? What do you tell them? We have to understand that recessions are part of the game. I think since uh, World War II, I think we've had a recession on average about every five years. And I just think about some of the most recent recessions. And I I guess we can include COVID of 2020 in that mix where, you know, the market was down 35% in about a month, but, you know, the recovery was relatively quick. So I I go back to like 2008, right? The the recession, you know, the decline in the market was 55% and it occurred over like a year and a half. And then it took about three years to recover. You know, even 2000, the recession before that market dropped about 50%. The, The point being, Recessions are part of being invested in the market, and we have to recognize there's going to be market volatility uh, when they occur. Can I just take a pause for a second, and let's explain the difference between recessions and bear markets, right? A a recession is when we see two consecutive negative quarters of real GDP. So instead of growing for those two consecutive quarters, the economy actually contracts during those quarters. A bear market is when you have a 20% fall off the previous high. But when when the National Bureau of Economic Research looks at recession, it looks at industrial production, it looks at payroll employment, it looks at personal income, it looks at sales in manufacturing and, and trade sectors. And I think it's just important to say, you know, they're not the same thing. They tend to go hand in hand often. Um, but right now, the folks at Goldman Sachs are saying that the, the risk of a recession is as high as about 30 5%. Why they, is that? They... And, and what to what degree is what's happening in with Russia invading Ukraine? Is that responsible for what we're seeing? It's part of it. It's part of the picture. The fact that Europe is so reliant on Russia for energy. So, so Europe could get hit in that way. And that what happens in Europe is then going to hit the U.S. supply chains. But we've also got inflation. And we had inflation before all of this started happening in Russia and people in the U.S. experiencing inflation, inflation in the amount that they're paying for their rents and gas and home heating costs are going to cut back their spending on other things that in and of itself, because we are a consumer driven economy in so many ways, could push us toward a recession. So can we talk then, Brian, about um, these uh virtues 
the two of the ones that we'll talk about today, discipline and courage, when you're talking about how you should be thinking about your in- investing. Um, because it sounds like the U.S. is going to be more immune to the impact of what's happening in, in Russia and especially around Russia's energy. But I think it is hard to have both discipline and courage when the minute you wake up, the news is terrible, horrifying, and the economic news and the market news is also really challenging. I think it's hard to have discipline. I think it's hard to have courage when you're feeling afraid about what's coming next. And the temptation too, Brian, is to jump in and just try to time it, right? Try to get it right. I mean, as you think about discipline, courage, the one line that kind of comes to my mind is the old Mike Tyson saying, right? Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, (laughs) You know, I mean, I think that's kind of the the same thing with the way the market's handled. Um, You know, everybody's like, well, I'll I'll invest when the next decline comes. Well, then all of a sudden we've got this Russia-Ukraine thing. And and for folks that maybe had cash that were thinking about investing, do you think they really start to feel comfortable now? It's difficult, right? So as you think about building an investment plan, I think these two words, discipline and courage, are are key. Uh, Number one, when you think about discipline – you got to build a plan, have a strategy, and then stay disciplined to it. Understand that that plan had both good times and bad times factored into it. And you've hopefully thought through how you're going to deal with those bad times before they happen, right? Because the time to, to, to realize you're not a very good sailor is not when you're in the middle of the ocean in the middle of a storm. <laughs> That's the first thing. Like, you know, when you have a plan, you got to stay disciplined and stick to it and feel solid about that plan. The the second part, the courage element is it's tough. (laughs) I mean, when the market is down, it is tough to stay invested. I mean, I've been doing this now for 17 years. I remember 2008 and I remember there were days or weeks during 2008 and the decline it just, it felt sick to my stomach to be an investor. I was on a treadmill at a gym, you know, and they have like six TVs up and all you could see was everything going down. And it was so anxiety producing that eventually I was like, I just have to get out of this room and this space. And it was just terrible. And I think when you're surrounded by that, it is, it's really, really hard to have courage. I mean, it makes much more sense to be like, that's it. Let's just cut all our losses and let's just pull out. We got to pause for a break. More about the possibility of a recession and what that could mean for our own personal economies, as Gene loves to say. And then to close out the show, uh, we've got something special. We're going to give you a sneak peek at a webinar that's coming up on tax efficient investing. It's called Six Tax Smart Investment Strategies. It's on Tuesday, March 29th at 3 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. You can register at planefe.com now and get a free retirement review. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien here with Gene Chatsky and Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, Brian Leslie. You are listening to Everyday Wealth. One of my favorite factoids is that half of the best days, historically, the very, very best days in the S&P 500 over time have occurred during bear markets. So if you were trying to like ditch stocks during a bear market, get out and leave things until they calm down, you would have missed half of all those very best days. And there's a lot of research that shows if you miss the best days, it's really hard to have good weeks and months and years. 
that's where most of us screw it up at mm. is because by the time it feels right to get back in, the market has typically already rebounded quite a bit. You know, early in my career back in 2008, the decline happened over about a year and a half and we didn't go straight down. You know, I, I, it was like October of 07, the market peaked out and then it was till about March of 2008, we had about a 20% decline and then the Bear Stearns things happened. And, and I remember at that time there were, there was one client in particular that was like, you know what, I'm, I, I just can't take it anymore. I can't sit here and watch this thing go down. And then he just decided to sell. Well, and his justification was, well, I'll get back in once I start to see this thing recover. Well, then all of a sudden from March of 2008 to June, the market rallies about 10%. And he, he gets that feeling like the train's leaving the station. And the problem is the market goes on to drop another 15%. <laughs> um, now, obviously, in hindsight, we, we know everything is, is, has recovered and markets moved on. But we didn't know that at the time. Well, and I think sometimes the answer is to just turn off all of those screens, right? Turn off the television. I, I was reading um, the New York Times this weekend, and, and Jeff Summer, who writes their strategies column, um, had reached out to Richard Thaler, who's a very famous behavioral economist. And, and he said, all right, you know, things are so much more volatile than we've seen them in some time. What do you do? And and uh, Thaler's advice was turn to ESPN, like just get the financial news off the television and watch some sports. And, and I think that slow, steady, consistent approach when you're talking about discipline, Brian, is, is what you're talking about. Dalbar, they're a research firm out of Boston. They, they did a report that showed that an investor who was fully invested from 1995 to 2014, and in, that included that 2008 period, they would have earned an annualized return of about 10%. You know, that's fine for me. I'll take 10% average anytime. Well, I mean, there's numerous studies and data points that go along to say the same thing. And and it kind of leads to this market timing discussion, right? So then let's break down market timing so listeners can really understand. What is the definition of market timing? So market timing, just in basic terms, Soledad, it's, it's buying and selling investments because you think you have a crystal ball that is telling you how they are going to perform. The problem is that people are often very wrong about these things. So it's the opposite of buy and hold, which I know, Brian, is the advice you at Edelman Financial Engines are, are often uh, giving when you're advising about investing strategy. That's it. So as you think about the kind of two different camps, I guess, there's, you know, active traders and there's, I guess, what I would call investors. You know, active traders are just kind of looking to buy the dips and sell the ribs type of thing. Um, with an investor, though, we're not really trying to catch those short-term moves. And, and the reason being is because the data suggests that it's, it's very difficult to do it. And there's very few people that can do it n not just once, but consistently over time. And I think that's where maybe a lot of do-it-yourself investors kind of stray is they, they might get it right once and then they get this kind of over this overconfidence. Um, and it leads them to think that they can do it consistently. And the problem is it's very difficult to do. So, you know, that's why we prefer to keep uh, a long-term horizon. Now, I will say that doesn't mean we just sit here and do nothing while the market's moving because there, there are things to do. I mean, 
you know, for example, if, if you've got a portion of your portfolio in a stock market, but then you've got a portion of it in things like short-term bonds, well, if the stock market drops 30%, well, short-term bonds probably haven't moved all that much. You should probably be rebalancing. And what that means is you're taking some of those bonds, some of those assets that, that have held up during the decline, and you can use it, sell it, and use the proceeds to buy into some of those things that are depressed, that's why rebalancing is so hard because you're asking people to take assets that have performed really well and sell them and plow those proceeds into assets that have done really badly right on the on the thinking that it's time for those assets that have done badly to start performing better yeah i mean it, and and listen it's coming to the investment philosophy one of the things that we're trying to do as much as we can is take the human emotion out of play one of the core underpinnings of our strategy is we will determine an allocation that we're looking to maintain before any mayhem hits and then when we start to see that allocation deviate over time we will monitor it and use that as an opportunity to rebalance and get ourselves back into alignment with what that intended allocation is. Can I ask you guys a question? Because this is a conversation that I had with my neighbor and his point of view was, listen, only experts can do it. He's like, I tried, I tried to get in. I just couldn't go because there's so much information that it's sort of rigged is not, is the word he used, but I don't think he meant it like in a illegal kind of way. I think he just felt like there's a system that only the insiders really have access to. And I'm wondering if you think that that's, that's accurate. I think if you have three things, right, if you have the time, the knowledge, and the desire to do it yourself, you can do it yourself. I mean, Is it a full-time job, though? Because a guy has a job. That's exactly it. I mean, I come back to those three things, right? The time, the knowledge, and the desire. You can't ha just have one. You got to have mm. all three of them, right? And if you don't have all three of them, you probably should be looking to work with a professional to do it for you. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, no, you can't do it yourself, but you got to have those three things. And it does. It takes an awful lot of time to monitor the markets and monitor your investments to make sure they're doing what you expect them to do. You know, the other thing that, that puts a crimp in your returns is, is taxes, right? I mean, you do well, you sell at the right time if you're an active trader or an active investor, and you potentially get creamed. You have to recognize that tax drag is part of calculating your returns. You know, ultimately, what most of us uh, as investors are searching for is the highest after-tax, after-fee return. Like, what is the return I get to keep after Uncle Sam takes his cut? And a lot of folks tend to overlook that because the more transactions you have, the more tax consequences that are going to be part of that. The good news is we've got a webinar coming up on Tuesday, March 29th. It's called Six Tax Smart Investment Strategies. You can register at planefe.com now and get a free retirement review. Thank you so much, Brian. We're going to take a short break. When we come back in just a moment, we're going to give you a sneak peek at a webinar that's coming up on tax-efficient investing. What's the point of making lots of money as you're investing if you just have to pay giant taxes on it? That's coming up right after this short break. And stay with us, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien, along with Gene Chatsky and Edelman Financial Engines Wealth Planner, Brian Leslie. We thought we would try something a little bit different to close out our show today. We're going to give listeners a sneak peek 
of the upcoming webinar that's hosted by Edelman Financial Engines. It's called Six Tax Smart Investing Strategies, and we thought it would be a good opportunity for people to experience some of the education that's provided. Brian, before we jump in, why don't you give us kind of the big picture? Each month, we host these free webinars that address topics that our clients and listeners are probably worried about. And, you know, here we are right in the heart of tax season. So I'm really excited about this upcoming month's webinar for a couple of reasons. Number one, the fact that we're talking about tax-efficient investing right in the middle of tax season. And the second reason is because by registering today, listeners will be able to get a free retirement review. So if anyone is interested in learning more about it, it's easy to register. Just visit planefe.com. We've got with us Wei Hugh. He is Vice President of Financial Research at Edelman Financial Engines. He's been on the show before. Some of you will know him. Welcome back, Wei. I, I know that in the webinar, you're going to really dig into these different strategies for tax-efficient investing. Can you just explain why this is a big deal? I mean, why is this something that every investor should care about? Are we talking about a little impact? Are we talking about a big impact? So let's talk about an example, and then you can decide. Uh, So Brian mentioned earlier this concept of tax drag. Uh, So here's the impact that tax drag can have on a portfolio. What is tax drag? So tax drag uh, is a concept that it it defines how much you lose from your investment returns due to taxes. And that's something that a financial planner can help you to minimize with the right tax-efficient strategies. And even a seemingly small percentage of tax drag can really impact your returns over time. So if we talk about an example, let's imagine a married couple. We'll call them Paul and Lisa. Let's say both Paul and Lisa, they they together have a portfolio worth $2 million today, including their retirement savings. Mm -hmm. And let's look at tax-efficient investing as part of their overall wealth management strategy. If we take their $2 million and keep it invested for 30 years with a hypothetical annual return of 7.5%, now in a magical world where no taxes are due, their initial investment would be worth about $17.5 million after 30 years. So Paul and Lisa are doing really, really well. In a magical world where there are no taxes due, (laughs) which doesn't exist. (laughs) That's right. Now, some of Paul and Lisa's portfolio is in tax-advantaged accounts, like a retirement account, but some isn't. So they will likely have to pay some taxes every year on things like dividends and any sale of investments they make as part of rebalancing their, their accounts. So let's say that the taxes add up to about 1% per year of their investment. So in the first year, that's $20,000 of taxes. But imagine that they can work with a financial planner to invest more tax efficiently, and the tax drag is reduced from 1% down to half a percent. That would be $10,000 less, again, in that first year. So Paul and Lisa could think, well, that's only a $10,000 difference or only 0.5%. Why bother? Well, here's why. Over 30 years, uh, half a percent of tax drag will result in a portfolio value of around $15.2 million, while a 1% tax drag 
will result in only $13.2 million. Wow. So, right. so you see you're what comparing I mean? that way, right? You're comparing that to the original $17.5 million, right? So so we're talking about right. a half a percentage point in tax drag is like the equivalent of a little more than $2 million and a full percentage point is like $4 million. So what seems like a very tiny maybe not worth your time savings over those 30 years actually is 2 million bucks, maybe a little bit more. That's right. So why don't people do this? We know that tax efficient investing, it's one of those areas that people often don't think about, right? There's a number of things you can do. And, you know, it's something that you need to pay some attention to. You don't need to be tax savvy to do all these things, but you do need to pay some attention And if you do uh, a few different things, you can end up paying uh, less taxes than you need to. Gene, I think one of the answers to that question, too, is like it's just like compounding interest. Like Mm -hmm. our human brains have troubles like getting getting our head around the power of compounding growth and how much that snowball really starts to roll in the later years. Um, And and I think the same thing applies to this topic as well. So way as you look at the different strategies that you're going to walk people through. Can you give us a taste of what those are going to look like so we know what to expect? Sure. Yeah. So there's several things you're going to want to pay attention to. So one is what kinds of accounts do you invest through? So people are pretty familiar with how 401ks and IRAs work, but I think people pay less attention and make less good use of accounts like HSAs and 529s. So we'll talk about how to get the most out of those different types of accounts. Then we'll talk about what kinds of assets to hold that have different tax consequences, like U.S. equities versus international equities that have different tax consequences. And it's not just what types of investments to hold, but what kinds of funds you hold them through. So ETFs versus actively managed mutual funds uh, act differently for tax purposes. Then we'll talk about uh, making buy and sell decisions in a tax-wise manner. Then we'll also talk about how do you take your money out in retirement. And this is a massive topic. So if you have a mishmash of different types of accounts, pre-tax, after-tax, raw, and they interact with your Social Security taxes. Uh, So you want to be careful about how you do all that. And you can uh, engage in charitable giving in a tax-smart manner to help reduce your taxes. So those are a handful of different ways, and and we'll talk about six different ways to uh, help reduce your taxes in the webinar. Well, it sounds fascinating. I mean, I'm listening to you list these things, and, you know, I, I know some of these strategies, right, but but certainly not not all of them. And and having looked at that, the difference in what you might have to pay if you get strategic about it versus what you're going to have to pay Uncle Sam if you don't, it seems like a very good way to spend an hour or so. So what if you don't have 17 plus million dollars, right? That it's actually your portfolio is much, much smaller. Is it still worth being a part of these conversations about tax drag and how to avoid it? Yes, it still is. So, uh, you know, in that example, Paul and Lisa started with $2 million growing to $17 million. Now, instead, if you had 200000 that would grow to about $1.7 million without taxes. But that extra tax drag would be about $200,000. That's worth it to them. And it may even matter more to people 
uh, that, that don't get to the millions of dollars. It makes a bigger difference in how they're able to live their life or maintain their lifestyle in retirement. That's right. So even just a small tax increase can have a huge impact on the growth of your portfolio over time. Not everyone will take advantage of all six tax-efficient investing tips that we talk about probably, but uh, if you can use one or two of them, then that can make a difference that matters to you. Absolutely. I think that's great advice. So I hope people who are just even thinking about becoming more aggressive investors will pop in and register for the webinar because you could learn a lot. And of course, as you pointed out, Brian, right, it's all about thinking and doing early. I think we need to be thinking about taxes all the time, not just when we have money, but also while we're accumulating assets, because where we direct our funds, whether it's tax deferred accounts, tax free accounts like Roth IRAs or taxable accounts, these all make a difference. And the time to realize that they make a difference is early on, not after the fact. But what I hear you also saying, Brian, is that it's not lost. All is not lost. If you get to year 28 and you haven't done this tax planning ahead of time or 25 or, you know, you're looking at retirement, you can see it coming down the pike. There are still strategies that you can implement to minimize the tax bite. That's exactly it. I mean, I I deal a lot with uh, near retirees or, or retirees already. And one of the things they're thinking about is how do I draw from all of these accounts? And as Wade pointed out, they've got different tax consequences as you withdraw from them. Really, really great advice. Thank you, guys. A uh, big thank you, of course, to Brian Leslie and Wei Hu from Edelman Financial Engines. Appreciate the conversation and the great advice. That's our show for today. If you've got a question that you want us to answer, a topic that you'd like us to tackle, be sure to go to planefe.com, go to the Everyday Wealth page, and let us know. And if you missed last week's show, you can download the podcast there as well. Or, of course, you can get it wherever you like to get your podcasts. If you you're looking for more information, can I point you to hermoney.com, my website? We've got a lot of podcasts that dig into behavioral finance and how to handle the fact that we're human beings who sometimes don't do things that are in our own best interests. Thanks so much for listening to us on Everyday Wealth for Soledad O'Brien and for me, Jean Chatsky. Have a wonderful week. Join us for our free webinar on Tuesday, March 29th at 3 or 8 p.m. Eastern. And if you register today, you'll get a free retirement review. Just visit planefe.com to register. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast. 